So I had a really delicious morning in the painting studio this morning, just playing with paints and color and the blank piece of paper. And it was especially delicious for me because I am not a painter, and I've never thought of myself as a painter. I have no investment in being a good painter. Uh, All of my ego identity is tied up in other endeavors. And so... I was able to just go in there and splash around with the paint and just have a really wonderful and delicious time and end up with paint all over my arms and hands, which was really satisfying because it's very rare as a writer. You get up from a session of writing and there's colors all over your hands, no matter how vivid the material you were working with. um, Somehow there's no sign of it physically afterwards. So... It was really satisfying to be in the play of color. And in that satisfaction, it illuminated for me again how much that ego investment in my work and my identity as a creative person can get in the way of my enjoying the creative process and how liberating it is when that loosens and melts a little bit. And I was reflecting that that's one of the reasons that meditation is so supportive for the creative process. Because over time, one of the things that a meditation practice does is it begins to loosen that kind of death grip that we have on I, me, mine. And this vision of our limited identity begins to loosen and melt a little bit as we begin to soften and open to the possibility of a larger way of being, a more interconnected sense of who we are. And that sense of loosening the the death grip is very, very supportive to the actual enjoyment of the creative process. This is a piece of writing by Mary Oliver, who I'm sure many of you know is a wonderful poet. This is from a book she has called Rules for the Dance, which is actually about a handbook for writing metrical poetry, a very craft-oriented book. But she has this wonderful passage in there which speaks to this loosening of our identity. She says, Always remember that the thing that you love is language, poetry, its motion, its good news, the applicability of what it says to a thousand human spirits or a million And what you do not care about very much is yourself as the poet. So she's talking about poetry here, but it's really applicable to any art form. She says, and therefore it is the process that is important and the body of literature entire and how it changes us from mere humans into meditative beings. Modesty will give you vigor. It keeps open the gates of prayer through which the mystery of the poem streams on its search for form. Just occasionally take something you have written that you rather like, that you have felt an even immodest pleasure in, and throw it away. So that's very liberating to me, that sense of letting go in that way. And the other thing that I was reflecting on as I was painting this morning is just reflecting again on what an extraordinary and rare opportunity this is that we have here to practice this meditative art and this creative arts together. You'd think, because they go so well together, that it would be practiced this way all the time, but 
really, as those of you who've been on a meditative path may have experienced, that's not usually the case. I've been coming to and teaching on retreats here at Spirit Rock for about 12 years now, and the only retreat, the only other retreat that I've been on that has this element of art um, so substantially in it is actually the family retreat, which I've been on many times, about six times now with my son Sky, uh, who's now almost 12. And when you come on the family retreat, you walk up this hill here, and the first thing you see on the right is the art tent. And the art tent is full of paints and crayons and paper and material for making friendship bracelets and lavender wands and shrinky dinks. And there's often a monk or another teacher in there telling stories or reading stories out loud while people are making art. And then you go a little further up the hill and what you see are big containers of chalk, sidewalk chalk. And people are drawing and coloring all over the sidewalk here and making pictures and writing messages, you know, Susie Rocks, Ajahn Amro is an awesome monk, you know, colors. And then you come into the hall. Well, actually, before you get to the hall, there's the courtyard, and there are musical instruments around everywhere, and often people shaking shakers and dancing and singing songs. And then you come into the hall, and there's lots of singing. And in fact, that... Uh, that um, <laughs> I hate to use the word excruciating, but I'll just use it. That that entry talk where you have to learn all about the ticks and everything on the land and what to do in case of a fire, that's all done to song. Um, there's a song about the ticks and everything else on the land to the tune of a few of my favorite things. So there's this real atmosphere of play and creativity that we also have here, although it's a little more subdued, a little more silent and not so many temper tantrums and you know loud screaming on um, this retreat. But there's that similar sense that the uh, artistic endeavor and that creativity is central to the spiritual path and that, in fact, you wouldn't consider doing it without it, that it's an integral part of our awakening, our aliveness. And there are schools of Buddhist practice, not all of them, but many of them, where this has historically really been acknowledged. Uh, if you look at the Chan and Zen traditions in particular, the Chinese and Japanese traditions of Buddhism, it was very common for the same person to be a meditation master, a master of martial arts, a um, accomplished artist in some form or multiple forms, whether music, poetry, painting, and also uh, a master of medicine because there was this understanding or this belief that training the mind and heart and training the body and uh, cultivating creative expression and healing were all integrally entwined. I was reading a really wonderful book uh, this year by Jane Hirschfield, who is a wonderful poet, and she came out with a book this year. It was actually a Kindle single, so you can only get it as a download which is an essay about the poet, Zen poet Basho, who was a 17th century poet and Zen monk who traveled all over. I mean, he had this amazing life as a traveling poet, going to these things, an art form called renga, which was basically you would, a group of people would get together and collectively make poems. Someone would do a few lines and someone else would complete it. It sounds kind of like poetry slam or something like that. Anyway, she writes about Basho, 
It's this. She says, In his poems and his teaching of other poets, Basho set forth a simple, deeply useful reminder that if you see for yourself, hear for yourself, and enter deeply enough this seeing and hearing, all things will speak with and through you. Zen is less the study of doctrine than a set of tools for discovering what can be known when the world is looked at with open eyes. Poetry can be thought of in much the same way. So that's really the essence of this retreat. It's discovering what can be known when the world is looked at with open eyes and discovering that through our sitting practice, through our movement, and also through our various art forms. And in doing that, we're really touching into that first of the refuges that Mark was talking about last night, that taking refuge in this um, awakening, our awakened nature, that uh, is often in the Buddhist terminology referred to as taking refuge in the Buddha, our own awake nature. The word Buddha simply means awake, awakened one. And we are also taking refuge in, through our art in that second refuge of the truth of how things are, the Dharma. And we're actually very loyal to the truth in our writing and our painting, even if we're being incredibly inventive. Even if you're writing fiction, I know as a fiction writer, I wrote fiction because it was a way of getting closer to the truth than I could through nonfiction. That somehow, even when we're making our most fantastical creations, our loyalty is to some kind of truth about how things are inside us or around us. And then we're also taking refuge in that community, Sangha, that he mentioned. And the Sangha being not just all of us as uh, writers and painters and artists here, but all the generations of people who have practiced our art forms. We're entering this great flow of human communication and sharing about this aliveness, this extended sangha of beings going back so many years, devoting themselves to this kind of awakening. And again, I'm going to read Mary Oliver from Rules for the Dance. And again, she's speaking of poets, but you can just substitute in any artist. She says, no poet ever wrote a poem to dishonor life, to compromise high ideals, to demean hope or gratitude, to argue against tenderness, to place rancor before love, or to praise littleness of soul. Not one, not ever. On the contrary, poets have in freedom and in prison, in health and in misery, with listeners and without listeners, spent their lives examining and glorifying meditation, thoughtfulness, and human love. They have done this wildly, serenely, with hope, without hope of answer or reward. They have done this grudgingly, willingly, patiently, and in the streams of impatience. So that's what we're dedicating ourselves to here. That's really something very deep. And we may be doing it grudgingly or in the streams of impatience from time to time, but we're part of this great sangha of um, artists who have been doing the same thing. So just to bring all that a little bit down to earth, I thought I would tell you a little bit about one of my adventures in uh, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in the creative exploration this year. And as many of my stories do, this one involves my son Sky, who's now 11, almost 12. He goes to a wonderful school. He's in a mixed 6th, 7th, and 8th grade class. 
And this year, his teacher decided that the whole class would participate in National Novel Writing Month. Now, how many of you here, many of the writers may have heard of National Novel Writing Month? You have heard, probably the painters, it's not so big on your horizon. National Novel Writing Month is this great, crazy endeavor where all over the world people sign up online to write an entire novel in a month, which of course is an absurd task. It's so absurd that it liberates you from any ideas you might have about perfectionism. Um, the goal here is sheer quantity. You commit, in order to be a winner in NaNoWriMo, you have to write 50,000 words. And um, for those of you who aren't writers, that's about 200, 250 typed pages. And people do this in a month while holding down other jobs. Uh, you just get it out there. Um, a few statistics. NaNoWriMo, as it's abbreviated, National Novel Writing Month, began in 1999 with 21 participants and six winners who came out with 50,000 words. This last year, um, there were 256,618 participants all over the world, roughly 36,000 winners, and the total words logged during 2011 were 3,074,068,446. Exactly. So it's quite a large-scale creative endeavor. And uh, so Sky's class signed up. There's a Young Writers Program. And for the Young Writers Program, you don't have to write 50,000 words. You can choose how many words you'll write. So Sky said to me, well, I'm going to write 25,000 words. And I said, well, Sky, you know, that's a lot of words. That's actually a lot. You might want to pick something a little more scaled down. And he looked at me and said, Mom, I type really fast. <laughs> you know, as if the only obstacle to creative outpouring was how fast you can move your fingers. So he launched into this. And uh, at the time he launched into this, I was, he said, Mom, you should do it. But I was teaching a retreat here at Spirit Rock, actually, the first week of the month. So I said, well, no, I can't do it. I'm doing this other thing. But I'll, I really look forward to hearing what you're doing. So every day after a day of sitting and walking and, you know, lovely retreat, but no painting and no writing, I would talk to Skye and he would be, oh, I wrote another thousand words. I wrote 2,000 words in the, at school. And he also told me about his other kids in the class. Uh, Jed had signed up to write 30,000 words, and Jed was writing a novel called um, Why I Stopped Reading Fantasy Novels. It was a fantasy novel. And uh, Skye's novel was called Don't Stand Still. It was about a dystopian future in which robots have taken over the world and some brave kids who are overthrowing the robots. Spencer had said he was going to write 50,000 words, and he was very busy on something, but nobody knew quite what Spencer was writing because he didn't like to have people reading over his shoulder, and they're all sitting here around a table writing together. So he had changed his font to white, so he was writing white on white, so even Spencer couldn't see what he was writing. <laughs> he was just pouring it out um, and going for those 50,000 words. So they just seemed to be having so much fun that at the end of the week, I decided I just can't resist. I have to sign up for this. So I signed up and I went on the site. I thought, well, I probably won't make 50,000 words because I've used up, I've wasted a week meditating, but, but I will, uh, I'll sign up for this. And I looked at the site and you sign up for what genre that you're going to be writing in. And I was looking for kind of the genre that said women's spiritual discovery story, but I couldn't find it. So I signed up for chiclet. 
And uh, I thought, well, what am I going to write? You're not allowed to do something you've actually been writing on. So I pulled out one of my ideas. I didn't want to use one of my really good ideas, you know, the ones that I'm really, you know, they're, they're, they're so good that I can't even start them. You know, those burdensome ideas that you just don't want to screw up so you never actually do them. I just pulled out something. It's like pulling out your clothes you're going to cook spaghetti sauce in that you don't mind if it gets really messed up. So I pulled out some idea and, and started to write. And it was just a blast. I mean, the wonderful thing, it's, it's a built-in sangha, and there's this free-for-all spirit, and it's very collective. So you log on to these forums. I kept logging on to the Chicklet forum, and people co- post questions like, my character is starting a bakery. I need the name for a bakery. Who will give me a name for a bakery? Have you noticed how chick lit books, the women are always starting bakeries? Have you (laughs) noticed that? I don't know what this is. I mean, for me, if I were in a crisis time in my life, the last thing I would want to do is start a bakery and cook for a bunch of other people. But they always do, and they always have a great time. And so, anyway, she was looking for names for her bakery. Or another character said... My woman is going out on a date with a much older and more sophisticated man where she's going to be really overwhelmed. Where should he take her? And so people are suggesting, oh, the opera, oh, a poetry reading, take sailing. You know, she just grabbed one of those and went with it because you don't have time to worry. Another person said, my character is doing a house swap and uh, I want her to do something that makes the person she's swapping with really mad. And so people were coming up with wonderful ideas for all kinds of trouble she could get in in this house swap. So I just started writing and just really relishing the sense of community and freedom and aliveness and fun. And at the end of the month, I had not made it to 50,000 words, so I was not a winner, um, which I blamed on my meditation retreat. Um, Sky had gloriously written his 27,000 words without ever looking back. And uh, in fact, we're publishing his book now on Create Space, so hopefully in a few days it'll be available there. But what I really had from that experience was a reignition for me of that sense of playfulness and fun in writing. You know, that sense of aliveness and that real focus that we were talking about at the beginning on the process rather than the product. And a sense of um, that that experience had so enlivened not just my writing but my life that I thought, what if my focus, rather than thinking as I usually do, creativity has to do with what I'm producing. And so if I'm producing a lot of good stuff, then I'm being creative, I'm in a creative mode. And if I'm not producing a lot of good stuff, then I'm having a not very creative year. Uh, what if I were to focus on the process and say, what, is it, what are the elements that make a creative life? And how can my art support having a creative life? That really takes a huge burden off the idea of being creative because it immediately puts it on something that can happen in any moment. How can this moment become more alive and more creative? And it stops valuing certain forms of expression over others. Thich Nhat Hanh tells a story of having someone um, ask him once why he spent so much time in the garden. And they said, Thai, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's title, it means teacher. Thai, why, you know, someone else can do the gardening. You write such beautiful poems and books. Why don't you focus on that? And he told the story and he shook his head and he said, 
I don't understand why they think a palm is more important than a head of lettuce. And that's, again, very liberating, that sense of why do we value certain things over others when we're looking at our creativity. So that became very much my focus in all of my artistic and also my meditation practice. Because as we've all experienced, there's a way that we can come to our practice and to our art that makes us more alive and vibrant and connected and engaged and creative in our life. And there's also a way we can come to it that makes us more cramped and constricted and hard on ourselves, and feeling as if we're trying to fit ourselves into a mold of a good meditator or a good yoga person or a a productive, creative uh, poet or writer or painter. And so what's the way that we can do all of these things that's liberating rather than constricting, that awakens us rather than shuts us down? And so... When we look at that, then, then the become, it becomes clear that there are certain elements or certain commonalities, certain aspects of the practice that we can bring out in service of that creative life. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about now, is what are these elements uh, that are common to all of these things that help us awaken that sense of a creative life. So the first of these, the first of these commonalities is to carve out some time, some special time, for the cultivation of this kind of aliveness. Some time to practice this art of looking at the world and ourselves with open eyes. And we think of that sometimes in terms of these big gestures, like coming on this retreat as an example, a wonderful way that you've carved out time to nourish yourself. But we can also look at it in terms of a daily thing, is there five minutes, ten minutes, doesn't have to be a lot of time, that we can carve out and dedicate for this returning, for this coming back to the deep inner listening and awakening. It's that sense of creating what Virginia Woolf called a room of one's own, you know, a place that we've protected from the busyness of our lives where we can drop below the din of the do list and the emails and all of the stuff that we have to keep track of in our life and just tune in and get quiet and feel. Really listen to the undercurrents. You know, it's like we're dropping below the waves and then we're coming down into that space where there are maybe sea serpents and coral reefs and billowing kelp and sunken ships. You know, we don't know what's down there, but we're dropping into those depths. And again, it doesn't have to be very much. This was one of the revelations for me. Uh, The poet William Carlos Williams, whom I'm sure you've all heard of, uh, was also a doctor. He had a full-time life as a doctor. And so many of his poems were very short because he wrote them, he scribbled them on prescription pads in between seeing patients. I'll read you one of those little poems. William Carlos Williams, Between Walls. The back wings of the hospital where nothing will grow lie cinders in which shine the broken pieces of a green bottle. And that's the poem. He just jotted that down. I can just imagine him seeing something that he wouldn't ordinarily have seen, but he'd made that space. He was tuning in 
And there it was in the cinders, the gleam, the beauty of just a broken bottle. So when we make the space, we're training up our ability to see these things, to notice these moments that we otherwise might let go by. And we're also sending a message to our creative unconscious that we're going to be here listening at a regular interval. Ideally the same time every day, but if you can't do that, just that that you've carved some space off to listen. So then your creative unconscious is bubbling along. You know, you're going about your day, but part of you is humming along, noticing, seeing, smelling, tasting, so that when you arrive at that place, you arrive already with a significant amount done because your unconscious knew you were going to be there. So it's like you've made a date with yourself. And then you don't want to stand yourself up because if you do too many times, then your creative unconscious won't emerge. You know, you'll sit down with the prescription pad and no beautiful green bottle will come bubbling up. You'll just sit there and you know, nothing will arise because you haven't, uh, you've let yourself down too many times. But the good news is that all you have to do is start reestablishing that time, carving out that space. And these little moments will start appearing. And whatever appears is enough. And as we carve out that space, it's like, I mean, it's almost like a glass-bottomed boat in our life. It's like we're moving through our life and it's a way of peering in and just seeing, again, seeing below the surface. And it's a way of making contact with our life. This is a poem by William Stafford on the art of keeping a journal. He says, At night it was easy for me with my little candle to sit late recording what happened that day. Sometimes rain breathing in from the dark would begin softly across the roof and then drum wildly for attention. The candle flame would hunger after each wafting of air. My pen inscribed thin shadows that leaned forward and hurried their lines along the wall. More important than what was recorded, these evenings deepened my life. They framed every event or thought and placed it with care by the others. As time went on, that scribbled wall, even if it stayed blank, became where everything recognized itself and passed into meaning. So that's your blank white page, you know, your, the page of the notebook, the page of the paper. It's that wall where everything passes into meaning and is known. Another principle for this creative life is the art of really being here in your body. When you make that time, when you carve out that sanctuary, to really cultivate the art within it of doing whatever it takes for you to live in your senses, to awaken your senses. Because creativity is a deeply sensuous process. It's deeply entwined with our life as seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, feeling beings. And so whatever method you have to bring yourself into your body, to awaken and open your senses, is a powerful asset to your creative process. Here we work with the yoga as one of those forms and also the sitting meditation. As Anna in our guided sit today was inviting us into our senses. We're coming back to the felt sense and we use those words again and again in our practice. The felt sense, what is it like to be here? What is it like to be human? 
Because again, these, this sense material is the clay for our creative expression and also for our creative life. You know, as an artist, you're working with color and shape and form. And the media that you work with shape your creative expression. Different in a different kind of paint, different in clay, different in photography. And so you're alive through that media, through the medium that you're working with, to the sensual world. As a writer, you're noticing. Sometimes when I don't have time, I just have that prescription pad amount of time. I'll just run through the last 24 hours and say, okay, I'm going to pick one smell, one taste, one texture, one sight, one sound, write them down, and then I'm going to make something with them. And uh, lately, again, because I don't think of myself as a poet, that wonderful freedom, I've just been writing poems. You know, what can I do with, okay, I've got uh, cat litter, spaghetti sauce, a beautiful kiss and a garbage truck. Okay, make something. Just to free up that sense of living in the senses. I think of it as going out and just putting things in the basket and then you make something with whatever's there, like those artists who make sculptures out of found materials. And that sense of sensuousness can then inform and bring meaning to our life and to our art. There's another quote from a writer writer named Bonnie Friedman from a book called Writing Past Dark. She says, meaning does not have to be injected into a story like juice injected into a cooked turkey. Things themselves are translucent with meaning, like paper translucent from grease. Meaning is held in the web of things, like honey held in a comb, or a soap film held in a hoop or a bundle of the sun's radiant energy held in the very green of chlorophyll. So when we open ourselves to the sensual, sensual world, we're opening ourselves to meaning in this way, and we don't have to think about, well, what does it mean that I'm here painting and I'm, I'm painting turtles over and over and over? We don't have to think about that. We just follow that. We just tune in, and the meaning lives in the sensate object itself. Now, this sense of being connected to the senses tunes into another one of these principles for creativity and a creative life, which is listening to, tuning into, and following the inner impulse, following the thread of aliveness wherever it leads us. And we can cultivate that again in our movement, in our art, wherever we are, that sense of trusting that thread where it wants to move. This is something that body-based practice helped me with a lot. I was one of those people when I first started doing this kind of thing, moving meditation back in my late teens, early 20s, and people would say, just, oh, just move from the inside. I had no idea what that meant. And my idea would be to look around sneakily, see what someone else was doing, and then try and copy that. I really didn't know what it meant to move from the inside. And I didn't really know what it meant to write from the inside. My writing, although I wrote quite a bit um, in high school, it was very much from the outside, assembling building blocks of information and putting them together. So through meditation, through yoga, I really learned to follow that sense of creative aliveness and unfolding and see where it went and see you know, where it unfolds in whatever form you're working, when you're painting, you know, as, as Barbara has said, what color is calling to you? Trust that. Pull that out. You don't have to know, oh, I'm going to paint a fortress 
or I'm going to paint my mother. You're just that color, and then this color, and then this color. Um, In your writing, an image comes to you. You follow it. William Stafford calls this following the golden thread. He believes that whatever detail you pick up, if you just follow it, whether it's a lawnmower or the sound of your father snoring, you can follow it and it will lead you to riches. Someone once asked him, well, is it every thread that does this or just certain threads? He says, every thread. Only the golden thread knows where it is going. And the role for a writer is one of following, not imposing. So, for example, say you're writing and you're writing the scene in a grocery store. And this is a very important scene to you because this is where your character is going to meet the person that they're going to fall in love with here at Whole Foods. So they're there and you're getting ready to write the scene and the character is buying some goat cheese. And suddenly you're just really interested in this goat cheese and you want to start writing about the goat cheese and you want to start writing about the smell of it and the taste of it and the texture of it. And you're thinking, I don't even like goat cheese. Why am I wanting to write about this? I've got to get back to the thing that's about to happen where she meets the guy or he meets the girl. But you're following this goat cheese and the character's thinking about goat cheese and then they're thinking about goats and then they're leaving the store and then they're going to buy a goat and then they're going to raise goats in their backyard and they're starting a goat farm and this is getting way off track. But when you're following the thread, you go with it because it might be leading you somewhere that's more interesting than where you thought you were going. And maybe something really interesting, maybe the story's not even going to begin until you're about a week into writing about these goats, and then suddenly you found the story. There was a story like this on the NaNoWriMo site by a woman named Erin Morgenstern, who wrote a book called The Night Circus. It's a bestseller last year, really wonderful book. She was a NaNoWriMo participant for several years writing this book. And this is what she says about it. Um, she said she, was, she basically was operating according to the NaNoWriMo princi- principle that says, uh, when in doubt, just add ninjas. Uh, she says, uh, I had this plodding, Edward Gorey-esque story with mysterious figures in fur coats being mysterious and doing very little else. I got tremendously bored with it because nothing was happening, so I sent the otherwise boring characters to a circus. And it worked. I ended up tossing that beginning and focusing purely on the circus. An imaginary location I created out of desperation expanded and became best-selling. So, and it's really a a quite extraordinary book. It took her several years of NaNoWriMo to get to that point even when she found the circus. And then she was off and running. So... um, that sense of following the thread, that actually leads me to the next principle we're going to talk about, which is the principle of saying yes to the unexpected. The NaNoWriMo story is one example of that. And uh, in fact, on the Young Writers site on NaNoWriMo, there's actually a I dare you button. And you punch the I dare you button, and it says something like, we dare you to let a herd of elephants stampede through your story. We dare you to put the next song you hear into your story and have it totally change the plot. We dare you to write a scene that includes all five of these words, wombat, caveman, galactic, Kleenex, and pickle. So, another principle for life and for art, 
open to these possibilities, open to these, these otherwise, um, things you might otherwise say no to. Let them into your story, whether they're suggested from the outside, and you actually don't need an I dare you button. Again, if you just go out and collect, you'll find the I dare you's. You'll find the things that uh, enliven that, that, uh, that story or that poem or that painting and really bring it to the next level. I have another quote here from William Stafford about that, I believe. Maybe not. So, I will move to the next point, which is go somewhere that you're afraid to go. Stay with something you're wanting to bolt away from. And this, it seems at first like it's contrary to that principle of following the thread, but it's actually very complementary to it. You follow the thread, you follow that aliveness, but then you stay committed, you stay connected, you don't bail out. Um, you follow it until it reaches its own conclusion. And that way you'll spiral deeper, deeper and deeper in. Um, I know working with Barbara in one of the previous years, I heard her say, you know, you, sometimes you think you're done with a painting and then she'll come by and she'll show you how you're not quite done. There's how there's another place that you can open to, a deeper level that you can open to. And this applies across the board in our creativity, in our life, in our art. I had a conversation recently with my niece, who is a, uh, uh, she was a choreographer and a dancer for many years in New York City. And then she had three children and decided she didn't want to raise them on, a, uh, on grants. And she went back to medical school. And she's training to be a doctor. And I said to her, Is this, isn't this really different? You know, how, is, how do you, you find your creative expression in this realm? And she said, oh, it's very, she said, it's very creative studying medicine because you're always constructing narratives. And she said, just like in dance, you've got to make sure you go all the way. You don't stop when your narrative is incomplete. You don't stop too soon. She said, most medical errors happen because doctors didn't ask enough questions. They didn't go deeply enough. They didn't undress the patient all the way, and so they missed something. Or they didn't do a particular unpleasant exam that they didn't really want to do, and the patient didn't really want them to do either. And so they missed something. And so... She said to, to just to have that persistence to keep spiraling deeper, to go dropping in further and further and further, and um, in your art, in your writing, to undress the patient all the way, you know, to really go in and to go into those places that may be dark, that may be scary, that maybe you didn't want to explore, and yet that are really, on some level, deeply calling you. And that too will serve you in whatever art form you're in, and then cultivating that in your art will lead you to be able to do that in your life as well. Another useful principle that relates to all of these is the principle of not being afraid to make mistakes, of not being afraid to go in and really screw things up. And again, that was, this is one that was very hard for me. I grew up in a military family, um, and my father was the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, and he coined the slogan for the 101st Airborne Division, um, we do things right. And we had a bumper sticker on our car that said, <laughs> we do things right. 
And that's a terrible burden to grow up with, <laughs> a sense of needing to do things right. And it was really crippling to me at the beginning of my creative process. And so what I really had to learn to do is be unafraid of doing things wrong, of making huge mistakes, vast mistakes, screwing things up in a piece of art, screwing things up in my life, and, uh, and opening to where that led, um, having a certain freedom that comes from being willing to take risks and not holding back into safe territory. My son used to draw a cartoon strip a few years ago when he was about seven, which was called Mistake Man, The Misadventures of Mistake Man. And Mistake Man was an anti-hero. Everything he tried to do ended in complete disaster. He would try and go skiing, and he would meet the abominable snowman. He would just walk out the front door, and he would fall into a time warp pit that would throw him back into the time when the earth was all molten lava, and he would be incinerated instantly. But the, uh, the wonderful thing about Mistake Man is always in the next strip, he was fine. <laughs> there he was again, bouncing back. And so that quality of being able to be a Mistake Man or Mistake Woman will really serve us well in our lives and our art. And also that quality of opening to whatever's going on and making a feast of it. This is another poem. This is from Jane Hirschfield. I love this retreat because I can read lots of poems. This is Jane Hirschfield. It's called The Egg Had Frozen, An Accident. The egg had frozen, an accident. I thought of my life. I heated the butter anyhow. The shell peeled easily. Inside it looked both translucent and boiled. I moved it around in the pan. It melted the whites first clearing to liquid, then turning solid and white again like good laundry. The yolk kept its yolk shape. Not fried, not scrambled. In the end, it was cooked. With pepper and salt, I ate it. My life that resembled it ate it. It tasted like any other wrecked thing, eggish and tender, a banquet. So that sense of opening to the parts of ourselves, the parts of our life, the parts of our stories, our paintings that we think of as wrecked, you know, or frozen, and returning to them, feasting on them, seeing the opportunity for reawakening and healing within them. And then the final principle that I want to talk to, talk about um, which again threads through our practice, our life, our art, is this remembrance of impermanence as the context that we work within. The impermanence of our bodies, which as soon as we turn our attention to them, we can't avoid seeing. You know, I notice this in my yoga practice. I went recently to a yoga studio. I usually practice at home and hardly ever go to classes. And where I go to classes, there are very rarely mirrors. And I went to this class and I was doing triangle pose and headstand and I looked at the mirror and I thought, God, you know, I don't really remember that when I used to do headstand that my face kind of fell up (laughs) around my hairline. That just isn't my memory of myself in headstand, but there it goes. It's all slipping away and we see this as we tune into our body. We pay the slightest bit of attention. We see the change, the, the constant process. 
And so to remember that this is the context that we're working with in our life, you know, that our art, even if it seems very permanent, is really like those, you know, Tibetan sand paintings or sand mandalas that are destroyed or sand castles that you build, the waves come in. They may be around a little longer than that, but they eventually just dissolve back. Annie Dillard, who's a wonderful writer, says, write as if you were dying. At the same time, assume that you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients. That is, after all, the case. What would you begin writing, or painting, if you knew that you would die soon? What could you say to a dying person that would not enrage by its triviality? So that's the, that's the context that we're working in. The sense that everything, even the things that we count on the most, are going to disappear, are going to melt away. I'm wondering about reading another Jane Hirschfield poem. You up for another Jane Hirschfield poem? I love this one. Um, it's about impermanence. She says, Stay, I said to the cut flowers. They bowed their heads lower. Stay, I said to the spider who fled. Stay, leaf. It reddened, embarrassed for me and itself. Stay, I said to my body. It sat as a dog does, obedient for a moment, then starting to tremble. Stay to the earth of riverine valley meadows, of fossilized escarpments of limestone and sandstone. It looked back with a changing expression in silence. Stay, I said to my loves. Each answered, always. <laughs> so, I love that poem. So there's a sense that even the things that we hope and pray and even the things that assure us that they will stay there forever actually are all subject to this law of passing away. And so how can we be within it? This is what we're really cultivating here. How can we be within it in a way that's alive and vibrant and sensitive and awake, where we're opening up to how things are in their full beauty and truth? So I'm going to conclude with a poem by William Stafford that addresses that question. It's called Just Thinking. Got up on a cool morning, leaned out a window, no cloud, no wind, air that flowers held for a while, some dove somewhere. Been on probation most of my life, and the rest of my life been condemned. So these moments count for a lot. Peace, you know. Let the bucket of memory down into the well. Bring it up. Cool. Cool minutes. No one stirring, no plans, just being there. This is what the whole thing is about. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.